Would you now open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 17, and today we're going to talk about Friendsgiving. No, we're not. <laughs> Do you know what Friendsgiving is, by the way? Have you heard of Friendsgiving? It's a new replacement for Thanksgiving. In other words, most of our families are so broken and messed up, nobody wants to go home. So they select friends who they enjoy being with, and they celebrate with them instead of going home for Thanksgiving. Isn't that sad? So Luke chapter 17, and we're going to look at the ten lepers, beginning in verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. Today we're, th we're talking and thinking a lot together about gratitude, and uh, we do need this word of the Lord to give us life and nourish the hunger of our souls. Hear now uh, the word of the Lord. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was the last one in the world who you would ever think do that. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for uh, your word. It is light. Uh, for our path, it is a lamp unto our feet. It has in it the wonder, wondrous words of grace and salvation. And we pray that your spirit would bring the word to bear upon our hearts and produce in us uh, the beauty of holiness. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're talking about gratitude today, which is one of the major ways we change. You cannot possibly experience, because we're still in the series, the biblical foundations for change. And one of the um, foundational issues in your life is gratitude. Are you a grateful person? Are you a person who is finding yourself growing in gratitude? How's it going? Is it growing? Is it thriving? Or is it being swallowed up and stifled by life? Is your response to God one of ever-increasing gratefulness? Or is murmuring and complaining and moaning and groaning swallowing up your grateful heart? Are you counting your blessings one by one? Or are you reciting your curses under your breath? 
So I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor, I don't need one more lecture on having a positive mental attitude, an attitude of gratitude filled with platitudes, and moralistic principles for how to do it. God forbid! I don't want to hear that. Well, you're not going to hear that. You're going to hear something much worse than that. No, you're going to hear something much more pointed than that. If gratitude becomes a duty, it is hardly the response that Scripture anticipates. So we're going to learn to think about gratitude today. What is gratitude? Why is it significant? Why is it important? What are the major obstacles to a grateful heart? And how is a grateful heart created in us? And even, what does a grateful person look like? Now, to emphasize the fact that gratitude has much to do with our growth and change as a Christian, Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, insists that Christians have already come to fullness of life merely and simply through faith in Jesus Christ. We will continue to grow as we understand and are thankful for Christ's work. Without gratitude for Christ's death, there will be no change in your heart or no possibility of change. Thanksgiving is fundamental to the Christian life. Why is thanksgiving the basis for change? Because it alone can soften our hearts, which are so rebellious toward God and His law. In appreciation for God's mercy to us in Christ, we are to give our lives to serve and obey God. Paul says that in a number of places, but in the book of Acts, which Paul did not write, Luke did, To the elders at Ephesus, he said this, Paul said this, I commend to you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among those who are sanctified. Here's why Thanksgiving is so important, or a grateful heart is so important. Because it points us away from what we have achieved, or fail to achieve, and it makes us focus instead on God's love, which alone can warm our hearts and set them on fire with delight in Him, and in serving and obeying Him. If we look only at our efforts, we soon become overwhelmed by our failures, or and sink beneath the waves of discouragement, or if we look only at minor successes, at any experiences, we may have had, we easily become proud. And again, there is a block in the way of loving God. God resists the proud, the scriptures tell us. But as only the love of Christ can constrain us to change our sinful attitudes and habits, it is of fundamental importance that we understand who Christ is and what he's done for us and what our salvation cost him. And just as a person saved from drowning is thankful, so should we be when we understand our deliverance by Christ. But here's the rub. We need to understand God's grace in order to be grateful. For example, let's say I go swimming out at Lake Mead. And I'm out there swimming, and it's, you know, not a real hot day, and the water's cold, and I'm kind of swimming around, kicking my feet, trying to get used to it. And all of a sudden, some guy dives in, comes, swims up to me, hits me in the head, puts his arm around me, drags me back to the shore, how grateful do you think I'm going to be for that guy saving me? Why? I can save myself, thank you very much. And see, until we understand 
that we're saved by grace alone, grace only. It would be this way. Let's say I'm out swimming in Lake Mead and I'm screaming out of my lungs, I'm drowning. And I put up one finger, you know, once and I go under and I fight my way back up. Two and I go under, you know, you've seen the cartoon. Third time you go up, put your hand up, guy plunges in the water. I'm already sinking in the water. It's pretty deep out there, as you know. Some guy in a scuba gear comes down, finds me, gets me, revives me, takes me back to the shore. How do you think I'm going to feel about him? Or her, if it was a her. I would be forever moved by that. I would be forever grateful by that. But when the Bible talks about us being saved by Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And God made us alive. He resurrected us from spiritual death and gave us life. And that is what breeds and creates and instigates and multiplies a heart of gratitude. Until you understand how lost you are without Jesus, how deeply mired and in bondage to sin you are, and unless you understand what Jesus has done about it, what it cost him to save us, and that we're saved merely by receiving, not achieving, then we will never have the fundamental core heart gratitude that brings about change in our lives. It never gets to the heart unless you see the desperation. And that's when gratitude comes to play. And the love of Christ can constrain us to change our sinful attitudes and habits. And it's in, in fundamental importance that we understand what Jesus has done. To the extent that we forget our status before God is due to what Christ alone has done for us, we will try to make our relationship with God depend upon winning His approval thinking that unless we fulfill certain obligations, God will not love us. And we begin to focus on what we have or have not done. And then we make some sort of anxious search for internal evidences of our new life. But doubts arise as to whether God really, really loves us. Then we realize we cannot possibly meet his standards and resentment builds up in our hearts against God for making such strict demands. So our hearts gradually harden against him and obedience becomes more difficult, requiring more effort and joy and wonder and praise dries up. That's why some of us have no joy of the Lord. That's why some of us have a heavy heart or a hard heart rather than a grateful heart and a praising heart. Why? Because we have allowed what we do to trump what God has done for us in Christ and we resent God demanding so much of us. You say, well, I've never done that. I would just say you don't know what you're talking about. You do not know in, in love and with sweetness. You don't know what you're talking about. Hadn't you ever really been mad at God? Have you ever been angry with Him because He did not do what you thought He should do? Am I the only one? I know I'm not the only one. And our anger and rage toward God has a way of stoking and fueling our ingratitude. And what used to be a joy for us, what we, you know, coming to worship is hard if you're ungrateful. It's misery. It is misery. And if we get in that state, what should we do? Was often at just this point 
that some super spiritual teaching, some kind of second blessing emphasis gains a foothold. Certainly the Christian life should not be sterile or joyless. Should we begin to search for some higher spiritual experience? No. Rather than seeking something else, we should turn back thankfully to Christ and remind ourselves over and over of who he is and what he has done for us. In gratitude, eats away at one's whole life by producing a spiritual drought along with bitterness. On the other hand, one, if you, if you have an imagined spiritual maturity and achievements, that can produce ingratitude that is, is expressed in spiritual pride. This pride drowns out all sense of need for deliverance from this body of death and is complacent in the face of inability to measure up to the standards of God's law. We start to think we have it made and we're more critical of others and less critical of ourselves. Have you ever told anybody they're proud? Have you ever said that to someone? You're such a proud person. Well, who else is proud? The person who said it. That's why it irritates you. That's why it bothers you. It's because what we do, we see in others. And uh, I found that so true of me. Every time I pick up a rock to throw it at somebody, figuratively, <laughs> seems like I have to say that, because I, I, the last time I remember throwing rocks at somebody, I was five years old in my front yard, and this guy had a beautiful convertible riding up and down the street. And me and my brothers were throwing rocks at it as hard as I could go. And my dad communicated to me in the most effective way, don't ever do that again. <laughs> but when, when, when we become ungrateful, at the same time, our critical spirit toward others grows. And we become even more critical of ourselves and we become down on ourselves and we enter into sort of a, a worm theology phase, uh, almost glorifying our sin. But centering on Christ alone can motivate us to love and obe obedience. And uh, centering on ourselves produces bitterness and complacency. So, how's your gratitude doing? Scripture is replete with admonitions for a grateful heart. It's a small pulpit. I need some room up here. And if you read the Psalms, you read the Gospels, you read Paul's letters, you will be impressed by the prominence given to gratitude. The whole of a Christian's life is to be an expression of gratitude for God's grace most powerfully and fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what is gratitude? Is it some sort of innate, universal ability to be summoned up at any moment, or is it spontaneous, provoked, or evoked by circumstances in life? Am I grateful for my doctor's attentive care until the bill arrives? We cannot make someone feel grateful, as every parent knows, from giving children gifts and waiting for them to say what? Thank you. Now, if you're a good parent, you've done this. Somebody presents your child with a gift, what do you say? Because they're mute. All of a sudden, they're mute. Nothing's coming out. And you say to your children, what? What do you say? Our, one of our daughters was so well-trained, she said, 
Thank you very much, please. She would, she would go through a litany of things, everything her mother had ever taught her to say. And I said, you know, thank you is enough. It's all you need. But why do we have to teach our children to do that? Why do they not naturally do that? Why are we not naturally grateful people? It is innate. Uh, we cannot make someone feel grateful. It cannot be coerced. It cannot be legislated. So what is gratitude? It is the heart's response to God's amazing grace. It is what God's grace produces in us. It is what follows from living before God and receiving His grace. Only God ultimately, in an ultimate sense, deserves thanks. Every good gift comes from Him. And all that we are and all that we have is evidence of His goodness. So why is gratitude so important? Because any action or good work of man not arising from a grateful heart is unacceptable because it's inadequate. There's a sense in which it is true that we only fulfill our calling as truly human beings when we express gratitude toward God. So, what are some obstacles to gratitude? What are some obstacles? Well, when we look in the passage we read this morning about the ten lepers, and the setting for this story is Jesus' is journeying from Galilee up to Samaria. And he's traveling through a village in the region beyond Samaria and Galilee, which is not quite on the way to Jerusalem. And when ten lepers approach him and ask him to have mercy on them, Jesus tells them to do what? Go and show yourselves to the priests. Uh, and they do as Jesus commands, and immediately they are made clean. But when one of the ten, a Samaritan, an outsider, a half-breed, a nobody, a loser discovers that he is healed, he returns to Jesus praising God with a loud voice. He prostrates himself at Jesus' feet and gives thanks to him. And Jesus asks, where are the other nine? Were not ten made clean? Only the Samaritan, only the outsider from the old northern kingdom, the foreigner, has returned to give thanks to God. Luke does not tell us why the other nine lepers did not return to give thanks to God for Jesus' healing. He leaves that to our imaginations, I suppose. And it's not difficult to guess some of the good and perfectly legitimate reasons they might have given for not returning to Jesus and expressing any thanks. First, there was always one in the crowd who said, well, Jesus did not actually ask us to do this. He did not say or command that we have to come back and give him thanks. Or another one might say, well, surely Jesus knows I'm grateful without me having to say it. Surely he knows that by now. Jesus was on a journey and had moved on. Who knows where he is by now? I'm busy attending a leper's anonymous meeting. I don't have time to return to Jesus and take away from my very important work that I'm doing here, and so forth. There are a number of possible excuses that could have been used. It is the hated Samaritan alone who returns to praise God and to thank Jesus. And numerous scholars have pointed out that this story falls into two parts. First, there's a healing story in verses 12 through 14, but in verses 15 through 19, it's not about healing it's about salvation and the Samaritan and the other nine lepers is healed but only as he returns to Jesus to thank him and praise God 
In concluding these verses, when Jesus says to the Samaritan, your faith has made you well, his wellness is not that he just or merely that he had been cured of leprosy like the other nine. This Samaritan had been healed, yes, but he had also been saved for a new life before God. Only now he has both a clean skin and a clean life before God. And only he recognizes that praising God cannot be separated from thanking Jesus. The other nine might have been grateful for having been physically cured. But the gratitude of the Samaritan is of a different order. He is made well both physically and before the face of God. And his is a gratitude, a giving of thanks that links healing to God's grace and God's grace to Jesus. It's interesting when you look at the concept of Christian faith and ingratitude, it's not simply ingratitude to God. It also can take the form of ingratitude toward a neighbor. And when we fail to perceive God's grace when it appears in our life in the person of our neighbor, in the history of Christian theology, there are not many examples of theologians who publicly confess their sins. Augustine was one exception, and a man by the name of Stanley Hauerwas is another. Not only does Hauerwas write about import the importance of Christian faith and ethics, but he has also demonstrated his own character and his admirable ability to tell the truth about himself publicly. In a community of character, he describes a painful event from his personal history. Listen. While a student at Yale Divinity School, he learned that his father, a bricklayer in Texas, was building a deer rifle. That meant everything from boring the barrel and setting the sight to hand carving the stock. Howross thought, well, that's fine, since it certainly has nothing to do with me. But when he visited his parents that following summer, he discovered it had everything to do with him. And as soon as he arrived, his father presented him with the rifle. It was indeed a beautiful piece of craftsmanship. And however, I said, I immediately allowed, allowed as such, but I was not content to stop there. Flushed with theories about the importance of truthfulness and the irrationality of our society's gun policy, I said, of course you realize that it will not be long before we as a society are going to have to take all these things away from you people. He says this to his father. He, it was, he acknowledges, one of the lowest points of my moral development. Amen. And an example of inadequate moral growth and character development. His response to his father demonstrated, I was simply not morally mature enough to know how to respond properly when a gracious gift was made. In the rifle, he recognized for himself a significant social issue, but he failed to discern the rifle was more than that. It was a gracious gift of a father to his son. It may be, as Hauerwas argues, that the story about a failure in moral development and moral skills but he doesn't use the term ingratitude to describe his behavior. But even more than moral development, it is surely what is at issue here. A gracious gift was given, but neither discerned nor received as such. Ingratitude is holding back. It is a refusal to give appropriate thanks, thanks for what has been given. And so what chokes and stifles and quenches gratitude is sin 
But in particular, what is the root of ingratitude? Romans tells us, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts was darkened. Ingratitude is the result of a willful refusal to let God be your God, to let him assume his rightful place in your life. And ingratitude is always followed by a life of idolatry, of exchanging his glory for our own image. It is self-worship, and its mission is self-glory. Um, so, put simply, uh, it is self-worship and self-glory. It is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, but there's more. Awful fruit grows out of a corrupt root, and one is a sense of entitlement. Put simply, this is an attitude that God owes me. He owes me a, a life at least equal to and exceeding my expectations. God exists in that kind of mindset for me and my good to serve me, to fulfill me, to make me great and glorious. When these expectations are unmet, my rage and bitterness toward God feels justified. But God is not a cosmic bellman whose reason for being is to serve and exalt me. But a presumptive, entitled heart is always an ungrateful heart. Now, there are more things that can spell ingratitude in us. One of them is having a quid pro quo. You heard that right? Uh, a legalistic relationship with God. And this is how it works itself out. Lord, I've been faithful to you. I, I, I've read the Bible every day this week. I pray at least once or twice a day. I, get, I go to church faithfully. I worship regularly on Sunday. I, I, I give of my income to the Lord. I haven't even been down and helped them get that new church ready. And then you have given me this to live with? You have allowed this to enter my circumstances? You have allowed this? And so when we have a covenant of works paradigm or a quid pro quo arrangement with God, it is this attitude. I work and put God in debt so that he owes me a good life. I do what is prescribed as a good Christian. And I build up a treasury of merit with God. And he's obligated to keep his end of the bargain. So whatever good I receive is what I deserve and doesn't really evoke in me any kind of sense of gratefulness. He owes me this. It is simple. It is fair. It is justice. I have never in my life ever seen a grateful legalist Pharisee or moralist. This kind of elder brother spirituality is offended by grace, not grateful for it. Duty-driven, obligation-centered Christians always seem to reverse Christ's promise, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Into my yoke is chafing and my burden is crushing. If one does not get grace, one will never be grateful. Nothing undermines, deconstructs, and subverts gratitude more than works righteousness. When suffering comes and a person cannot give thanks in all circumstances because he feels so betrayed, this is the tip of the iceberg. There are many more obstacles like pride. I'm the kind of person that should be blessed because I'm a good person. I deserve it. 
or a resistance to God's sovereignty. He can't be trusted to run the universe, so I must take matters into my own hands and manage my own life. And that is ugly fruit from a rotten root. I remember one day I was driving in the car praying, and I was pretty angry about what the Lord had allowed to enter my life. I was really angry about it. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want to chance it, but I remember thinking inside, why don't you get off the throne of the universe for a day and let me run things for a while? Then I could really take care of these problems in my life. Do you know how awful that is? I bet I'm not the only one that's ever thought that. But that's ingratitude. That's that bitterness, that residual bitterness and resentment and grudge we have towards God because He didn't come through on His end of the bargain. So what is it that creates gratitude? Short answer, the gospel. The gospel of grace in Jesus Christ creates it and it sustains a grateful heart. The single most significant cause of an ungrateful heart is a Christian forgetting or losing the gospel. To forget something is to no longer allow it to influence our present life. To forget the gospel is to no longer feel its influence, its energizing, its vitalizing, electrifying influence. To lose the gospel is to fall. I've never met a grateful moralist or an antinomian that was grateful. They're like bachelors' wives and nuns' husbands. They're total oxymorons. And so the gospel is a renewing dynamic in the Christian life. And it provokes gratitude. And here's how it works. Through the gospel, I'm more and more faced with the depth of my sin. I know we make progress in sanctification, but it never feels like progress. Because here I am thinking, well, you know, I hadn't really done anything horrible in a while. And then God decides in some flash a moment to expose a Grand Canyon vista of new sin in my life. And I start walking around going, what? I thought I was doing pretty good. I thought I was making progress here. But the reality of the Christian life is such that he exposes more and more of our sin. That doesn't mean you're not making progress. It just means that you're woke. <laughs> You've had an awakening spiritually, not woke in the cultural sense. Don't start that with me, okay? Don't start that with me. just means you've awakened to who, why you need Jesus so much. And that's where gratitude comes in. You'll never be grateful to Jesus until you see your sin. And you'll never see your sin until you understand how much Jesus loves you and what He's given to you. But as you see it, Rather than making you run away from God, it makes you want to run to Him. The only thing God owes me, when I think about myself, apart from everything else, is eternal judgment. But I don't get it because Jesus took it in my place. And this makes me eternally grateful. Through the gospel I see that I am forgiven much, and in response I love much. And the gospel creates in my heart a total 180 under the power of sin and gratitude and idolatry reign. But now that I'm no longer under the law and I'm under the power of grace, I'd gladly repent of self-worship and my mission of self-glory and begin to worship and serve the Creator instead of the creature. Once curved in on myself, I am now experiencing the joy of being curved out in love to God and my neighbor. Gratitude, that kind of gratitude, 
is done only by God's amazing grace. It is the only thing that can do that. So what does a grateful person look like? Well, look at me. No. What does a grateful person look like? Well, this is what a grateful person looks like. She loves to give God praise and thanksgiving because God in his grace is her ultimate concern and value. Worship is not dragging yourself somewhere, done out of effort alone, a sheer drudgery, but worship becomes delight. You want to be here. Worship is the priority of every day. Enjoying God describes your experience. You love to spend time in communion with Him. In marriage, gratitude expresses itself in a willingness to give, to love, to spend, and be spent for the other. It asks the question, how can I enhance my mate's glory? A grateful heart studies and finds new ways to love and encourage and support. It praises far more than it ever criticizes. Jack Miller, who was someone very influential in my development, once said on a, uh, when he was speaking to a group of men, he said, let me tell you this about marriage. He said, for every one time, you even think about criticizing your wife. You praise her a hundred times. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like very much fun. <laughs> but I want to tell you, that's how a spirit of gratitude behaves. That's how a spirit of gratitude works. A grateful person is a generous person. They're not stingy. They're generous with their time, their treasure, their talent. His life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, but in imitating his father. So ingratitude is a gospel issue, and gratitude is a gospel issue. May God give us all grace to repent of this ugly sin in the face of his overwhelming grace. Because when we truly see his grace, and I close with this, it's going to be early today. That's because you're listening really fast. Grace is unmerited, freely bestowed favor upon unworthy, undeserving, ill-deserving people. It is something in God's heart toward his people, not anything in us. It is unmerited favor versus earned acceptance. It is freely bestowed versus conditionally given. It has undeserving recipients, not worthy achievers. It is the polar opposite of self-reliance. Everything depends on what we do, how well we perform, how well we live, our efforts, our work, our level of achievement, verbs of which we are totally the subject. A performance-based Christian life comes from the malignant virus of pride, a pride which encourages us to build our lives upon a deadly lie that he claims that everything depends on what we do, on how well we perform, on our efforts, and on our work. But the wonderful truth of God's grace is this. God's grace is freely given, undeserved favor, bestowed upon... Uh, unbelieving people. Grace is undeserved. It has nothing to do with merit or demerit, our sinfulness or worthiness. The Bible says it's free. It means that God is free to show his love 
and mercy toward us without the slightest limitation because of our sin. The moment you bring up the question of worthiness or deservedness, you have disgraced grace. Celsius, or Celsus, the second century talking head, who was a critic of Christianity, said the idea of God-loving sinners and bad people was a thing unheard of in any other religion. Grace is not good advice. It's not a pep talk. It's not a directive to be good, to straighten up, clean up, get yourself together, get your head on straight, and then come to me, and I'll love you. Grace is unearnable. Many start out on the highway of grace, and of course God accepts me as I am, and I know it's totally undeserved and I have nothing to offer but my sin and failures. But from this point on, he certainly expects me to live up to certain standards of performance. And that is the Galatians heresy. Grace is unrepayable. Uh, if, if you think that your gratitude for grace is payback, you're turning salvation into a promissory note. Rather, grace is grace. It's beautiful. And so understanding what grace is, meditating upon the grace of God in the gospel, creates, generates, sustains, and profoundly works in us a grateful heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking us today about the realities of gratitude. We know that we all struggle with ingratitude. Some of us not struggle very much with it, but we thank you that we don't have to live that way, that we can be people who are filled with a heart that is grateful to you and to others who serve us and love us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who have a grateful heart. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.